A few weeks ago, the pandemic changed everything for pretty much all of us and reshaped the investment landscape in the process. Overnight, the startup game flipped from growth at all costs to keep only the essentials. It's now a game of survival. So we were concerned about all the past founders who've been on the show, and we wanted to see how they were doing. After asking around, one person immediately grabbed our attention, Debbie Way Mullen. Debbie pitched her Vietnamese coffee startup, Copper Cow, to our investors a few years back. But it's what she did in early March of this year, before COVID-19 went from an epidemic to a full-out pandemic, that really struck us. Her business is completely dependent on retail and hospitality, two sectors that have taken such a huge hit. It's hard to imagine how this business can survive. But she's found a way. And to understand how Debbie is surviving now, you have to understand how her company was thriving before all of this. So I'm going to play you some of her original pitch, and then we'll talk to Debbie about this year. From Gimlet, this is The Pitch. I'm Josh Muccio. Our investors today? Alexandra Stanton. Alexandra is CEO of Empire Global Ventures. And on the side, she likes to make strategic bets on startups she thinks will strike gold. Phil Nadell. As a serial entrepreneur, Phil built companies that sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. Now he manages one of the largest syndicates on AngelList. Charles Hudson. Charles started Precursor Ventures, where he's invested 20 million in over 100 startups to date. Sheil Manat. Sheil has sold three startups for over $50 million. Now he's an angel investor and he's invested in several companies worth billions today. The pitch for Copper Cow from back in November 2018 is coming up in just a moment. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. We hear a lot of pitches on this show. I mean, no surprise there. It's the name of the podcast. But the entrepreneurs who come on this show, they're pitching more than just a business idea. They're pitching their dream. Because when you run a small business, you're putting your whole self into it. State Farm gets that. And they work with small business owners across the country to help create personalized plans that are built for their small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, on with the pitch. When do I start? How about now? Okay. Hi, I'm Debbie. I'm CEO of Copper Cow Coffee, where we reimagine Asian beverages for your home, office, and adventure. So my mother is from Vietnam. She immigrated here in 75 as a refugee. And even though I was born and raised in California, I actually ate Vietnamese food exclusively in my house. I actually remember being in college and bringing all of my friends home to my mom's house for brunch and people being totally blown away by all of the flavors, especially Vietnamese coffee. And I thought that people would love Vietnamese coffee if it was just presented to them with really, really great ingredients and innovative packaging that fit their lifestyle. So Debbie started Copper Cow Coffee in 2016, an easy-to-make Vietnamese coffee for people on the go. And she got a great response. Within a year, her coffee and Thai iced tea products were in more than 3,000 stores across the country, including Walmart. 
But I think that retail success is just the beginning because I think the future of Copper Cow is actually really in selling online as well as into offices. Since launching online earlier this year, we've been growing 20% month over month. Um, completely organically. And then we've also launched an office coffee program this summer, and we're already in over 40 offices. So I'm here today to raise $2 million so that we can have Copper Cow Coffee be a household name. Great. Tell yeah. us about a little bit about the product. You said uh, you made it super convenient. Yeah. So, so actually, why don't I make you guys some coffee? Cool. Uh, if you guys are ready for it. Awesome. It's very attractive, the packaging. Thank you. Well done. Debbie tears open a matte black and white packet. She pulls out what looks like a white tea bag with a perforated top and paper tabs on each side. Inside the little bag is a single serving's worth of ground coffee. So the way it comes is a portable pour over. So it's just in this handy little packet. You open it up and it just fits over your cup. You tear off the top. Extending those tabs, she suspends the coffee pouch over the mug and starts pouring hot water over the coffee, which filters into the cup. Ta-da! It's pour over. And it comes with a little packet of sweetened condensed milk. If anybody wants to try it black first. Okay. Here you go. Thank you. It's a little super strength right now. I'll do it with the With, with the, the creamer. Con- mm-hmm. So Vietnamese coffee is kind of known for its strength. Um, the, the varietal is very caffeinated. This is probably one and a half to two cups of coffee of caffeine. So if I'm someone who drinks uh, half a pot of pure espresso in the morning, yeah, this am would be I good? this would be awesome good. for you. Yes. What's the price point per serving too? Just so I have. Um, so it really ranges. So in retail, it's it's pretty high. It's about two dollars a cup, mm-hmm. um, and that includes the, but that includes the creamer. Okay, so two dollars retail. Can you take us through just the numbers quickly? Like, what does it cost you? What do you sell it to the retailer for? Generally speaking. So we have been selling with a consistent 45% margin for wholesale because 80% of our business is still retail because of all the retailers that we're in. Um, historically, it's been a higher margin for e-com, yeah. though we're going to kind of reconfigure e-com to be a subscription model where you get month supplies of coffee. Makes sense. Yeah. And what are you hearing from the retailers? Like, how do they feel about how sales are going for this category? Like, are they reordering? Or I guess, are you at that point yet with Walmart? Yeah. Well, Walmart, it's selling really well. We're doing about two turns per store per SKU per week. Okay. Um, so that's that's really strong for the price point um, and it being a brand new product. I just should disclose, I'm an investor in DripKit. I know, I so know. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to be clear in case there's anything you don't want to share or anything like that. I just want <laughs> to put your... that out there. So I, I'm going to have to be out, but I am a big believer in the category. You got a free cup of coffee first, though. <laughs> I see. It's very good. It is very good coffee. And I, did, I just wanted to put that out there before she goes into competition. That's all. Since he's already invested in the competition, Charles is out. But he's noting that Debbie is a part of this trendy third wave of coffee. Third wave coffee companies obsess over every bean, from where it's grown to how it's processed, and then they help you perfect the brew at home. So even though Charles can't invest in Copper Cow, his endorsement of the overall trend actually could be good news for Debbie, if she can prove her product is unique. What's your differentiation from Dripkit? 
Um, well, first of all, is definitely the blend. Um, is that Vietnamese coffee has a very different profile than a lo- they're definitely highlighting a lot of these like really light roast single origin coffees, which honestly are a little unforgiving if you mess up the brew. Um, our Vietnamese coffee, we're the first people to be introducing third wave Vietnamese coffee. Historically, this is something that's actually pretty new. Um, Vietnam's the second largest coffee producer in the world, but just in the past five years have started to have high end beans. So it's really awesome to introduce that. It's really smooth. It's definitely a really, it's kind of a wonderful foolproof uh, brew. What percentage of your current revenue, let's say for 2018, is from online and what's what percentage from office and, and what percentage retail. from retail? Um, 80% from, um, from retail, 10% from online, and 10% from offices. Okay. What do you want that to be next year? Um, I would love it to be more of a third, third, third. What the investors just heard is that this business is almost entirely reliant on brick-and-mortar channels like Walmart. What about online? So what's your current customer acquisition cost and what channels are you using? That's the thing is we, it's been all organic to date. Oh, so we, okay. we haven't really – That's and that's one of the things that we're really going to figure out with this funding. Because we when we, we launched the product line, we did it at the Fancy Food Show with a lot of my contacts that I had in the retail space. And we've just been kind of – falling over ourselves trying to uh, meet that demand when really we would actually like to focus on direct-to-consumer on online. And so... um, How are they finding you currently? You said um, it's organic, so how are they... They find it in stores and they buy it online. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So who are you going to hire or bring on to help with that since you don't have a lot of background in online direct marketing? So immediately we want to hire a digital um, growth marketer, um, someone who can really kind of execute a lot of the Facebook ads, Google ads, things like that. Um, But right now I'm doing lots of dating for like a more senior kind of head of brand person or head of e-com. Um, someone who's experienced building an e-com brand, um, probably from fashion or, or cosmetics based in L.A. Charles, what has been your experience, obviously leaving out any competitive details, in terms of the arc uh, of a brand like this and what Debbie may run into? I think the the best trend that Debbie has going for is that I think once you become a pour-over person, it's kind of the only kind of coffee you want to drink. It, Why like, is that? It, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. Like once you've had, I don't know, I, I drink a lot of pour-over coffee. Just I make because it, it's easier? No, it's better. It's, it not, it's actually not easier. It's a better coffee experience than French press. And like drinking drip brew is like, ugh. I used to carry a filter and an electric kettle in my suitcase, and it was like a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, you, you, aren't, yeah. you aren't alone. No, no, I'm not even kidding you. Yeah, I used to carry this with me. And like the fill, this will give you some a point of reference. A good cup of pour-over coffee in New York or San Francisco was going to run you 4 to $5 in a coffee shop. Or okay. more. Or more. So – if you're a pour-over person, the idea of being able to have pour-over in your office or on the go with you, is a, it's a lifestyle. Once you become a pour-over person, it's what you want to drink. And this is something that takes 60 seconds to make and is offers really, really great flavor. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I think is really beautiful about like a lot of the great e-com companies that I'm trying to aspire to is that they really maximize um, kind of price point as well as luxury and i feel like copper cow does that we're not the most expensive coffee on the market you know we're really really great coffee that's really easy to make that empowers anybody to make their own coffee without having to think about do i already own a french press do i own a chemex do i own a drip coffee maker but how difficult would it be for starbucks to offer more pour over options and make it more of a mainstream part of their product mix 
I would say that the typical consumer that we're going after is somebody who wants something better than Starbucks. This is much better than yeah. Starbucks coffee. Um, it's much higher grade. You'll be able to taste the difference um, between like a Starbucks or well, our pour Let over. me get a third party opinion. Charles, you're a coffee snob. You just I tasted avoid it. Starbucks at but all. But I want to hear what you think of the quality. I think this is excellent. And I Thank think it's, I think this is a very, and I drink, I like Vietnamese coffee. I think this is a very good expression of Vietnamese coffee. So, so on some levels, Debbie to succeed over some of these other brands is not just have to get through the other small emerging brands, but she has to persuade on some levels, Starbucks drinkers to switch. I disagree. I mean, Blue Bottle was a $700 million yeah. outcome with maybe mm. 30 or 40 retail locations at the time that they sold. Yeah. And, but a very loyal they built ILTV. A brand. They built a brand. They, the the <clears throat> the acquisition was not about how many stores they had. It was about the brand that That's they right. had built. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with with coffee company acquisitions, yeah. they're always quite large. They're I very, mean, the co- multiples coffee, are coffee fantastic. Coffee companies that you haven't even ever heard of are selling for three hundred million. <laughs> there's a <clears throat> there's a lot to like thinking. here. You know, there's a everyone's looking at me. There's a lot to like here. Um, I, I guess uh, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm wish, I find myself wishing that you had more traction online yes. or at yeah, least, or at least that you had the team in place with that experience to build the online presence. Right. I'm sure I just would love to see more traction in that area. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm having trouble with it. I'm having trouble. <laughs> Uh, I'm conflicted. Let me ease your troubles. Tell me. <laughs> uh, I've, I've shared with you. Well, uh, this is your chance. Give me, give me your best shot at why I should invest. I've told you what my concerns are. I've told you what I like yes. about it. I think the valuation is reasonable. It sounds like you have good institutional yeah. support. Right. Um, so there are a lot of pros, but I'm concerned about. I, and I think I think that's that's something that's come up with investors a lot. And I think that the the rebuttal for that is a couple things. One is that um, my background, I'm like an, an analytics all day. Like I went to Berkeley, I went to MIT, I was an analyst at the World Bank. Um, honestly, I think my skill set is going to be growing online in iterate an iterative analytical strategy. And even though I haven't done it before, I know that I'm going to be able to find the right partners to do it and really conquer this space. Um, so, I mean, I know that it's not something that I have necessarily background in, but I also didn't have background in food and have like done really well since quitting my job two years ago. You know, I, I'm like you, Debbie, I'm a numbers person. I'm an analytics junkie, mm-hmm. right? So I like to see customer acquisition cost. I like of to course. see lifetime value. I like to see all the numbers from the online um, sales channel. Right. We're just not there yet. Right. So I think I'd rather, you know, I'm passing for now, but mm-hmm. I'd like to look at this in the next round. Great. Great. About Great. That. I hope yeah. so. Thank yeah. you. So I, first of all, I love you. I can't believe, yep. I'm, I think <clears throat> like the fact that you've built this and gotten 3,000 3, stores basically all by yourself is incredible. Um, and I think you should get a, a ton of credit for that. For me, it's just like a category I don't know well enough to, to make an investment. I wish you the best, but for me personally to invest in this round, I'm passing. I, I have watched Glossier Uh, with one of my faves uh, exactly right they've built that channel but those audiences and how they tested early were everything i think i'm i'm a little stuck around the marketing piece of it as well Mm -hmm. because you do 
I agree with you. The the lifts and the Walmarts of the world are uh, very attractive and great to kind of for a year you know old company totally. to get someone's attention, saying, "Okay, there's some retail stickiness here, and they're sticking yeah. with you." But that online piece is going to be everything. Um, but I'm passing for now. But I'm a huge, as she'll say, I'm a huge fan of yours. I think you're a badass. <laughs> so in a good way. <laughs> that no, that 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 is a good term. I do think though, you guys like. Seriously, like she built this to a million dollars in revenue all on her own. And you're like, oh, I need to see more proof. Proof online. No, it, no, proof it, online. Yeah. Like third party retail. Look, is I, not I've a hired growth stuff. marketers. Like she can hire a growth marketer. That's I, I don't think that like I don't think she needs that skill set as a co- as a co-founder. Like this is I mean, this is a seed deal. I, I don't know what you're expecting. That, that's a good argument. Right. Uh, but. If you're an investor who likes to invest in direct-to-consumer companies, this is not yet it. That's fair. Correct. That's totally fair. She's moving in the direction of the kind of company I want to invest in, but you know, next <laughs> but it's round. But not there. Yeah. Not, not no. there at this time. That's early. But you're tremendous, and congrats. Thank Congratulations. you. Thanks, Thank you guys, you. for You've the opportunity. You've done a great job. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you built we'll a great s- product. Oh, yeah. Awesome. We'll stay in touch. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Back in November 2018, Debbie left the room without investment. And it all came down to the fact that our investors wanted her to be more focused on selling directly to consumers online and not be so dependent on retail stores. Not long after she came to the pitch room, Debbie raised the rest of her $2 million seed round from other investors. And so with a fresh injection of cash, she got right to work building Copper Cow. When we come back, we'll learn how 2019 went for Debbie and how her early strategic decisions in 2020 are keeping her company alive. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. As rewarding as it may be, small business owners have a lot riding on their shoulders. It's a lot of stress to own, run, and grow your small business, not to mention finding someone who can give you the answers and support you need. But State Farm agents aren't just there to understand your small business needs, they're there to prioritize them and help create personalized plans with your needs in mind. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. Small business owners know that it's not just business, it's personal. Your business is your life, and State Farm gets that. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they know what it takes. They can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. And they live and work in your community. So you're not just getting an insurance plan, you're getting that personal touch. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome back. All right, before we jump ahead to the current situation, I'll pick up where the pitch left off. It's January 2019, and Debbie had just closed her round. You had just raised $2 million. So you're flush with investor money. <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? 
Um, so he first hired a growth marketer. And then actually, um, I ended up hiring a COO. And then we had to hire like a junior ops person to help things day to day. Okay. And a customer service person, mm-hmm. a salesperson just focused on hospitality, a copywriter, two designers. And then we also had a social media manager. That's a real company right there. Like, what did you feel like having that many people working for you? It felt really great. Um, I mean, especially like I remember, right, we had a really, really crazy Q4 because, you know, we're very giftable. It's very intense. And so I remember just wrapping up. We give everybody the week off right after Christmas and, you know, feeling like, wow, we like I have this like whole team and, um, you know, we grew the company a lot. So the company grew 4x in 2019. And so half of that was e-com and half of that was the wholesale um, part of the business doubling. What, what did it end up being exactly? Um, it ended up being $2 million. By February 2020, Debbie had scored contracts with not one, but two huge grocery store chains, Whole Foods and Sprouts, in addition to Walmart. Her team also signed deals with offices like Tinder and Headspace. And then there was Hilton. We had just signed a deal for a three-hotel opening for Hilton. So we were really excited. It was our first, like, 12-month contract, real reoccurring revenue in a hotel. We were so excited. And that was signed in February. Oh, so this would be, like, Copper Cow would be the coffee in the hotel room instead of people using K-Pods or whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) K-Pods. Wow, that's that's clutch. That's huge. (laughs) Yeah. So we were just gearing up to to raise our Series A. So kind of with a great 2019, hospitality finally taking shape, and then this like great big account coming. We were like, okay, we're going to go out and raise our Series A. We were really excited. What do you expect sales to look like in, in 2020 at this point? So we forecast for sales to be about $6.5 million this year. And that, that next year we would break into profitability in 2021. That was the forecast. Got it. And then... And then, <laughs> and then COVID-19 happens. When did it, like, do you remember the first time you were like, COVID-19 yeah. is is real? Literally, I remember my partner, my husband saying to me, because he had been doing a lot more research, because he lived in China until two years ago. And um, he has a lot of friends there. And he was able to really talk about, like, what had been going oh, wow. on and what, we were not doing. <laughs> so as he's a talking to his friends there who'd yeah. already been through it. And so he it. was just like, Debbie, this is like a serious situation and it's going to get really, really bad. And like, you need to be prepared for this. You should really have your team work remote. And I was like, well, I don't want to just have everybody like not be around each other. What's that going to do to morale? Right. And he was like, I don't, I think this is a lot bigger than that. And it took him about like 24 hours for him to kind of like walk me through like what was about to happen to the U.S. And this he's was like, like, read this article, listen to this yeah, podcast. He's like, let me show you what's happening. And this was kind of like the the very beginning of March, like um, like March 2nd, I think. So then we decided to like be like, okay, I think this is what's about to happen to the country. I think this is what's about to happen to the economy. And we have to be crazy aggressive to change the business to this reality that like there's no more hospitality for a while and even when they come back who knows what state they're going to be in Mm -hmm. and 
I have no idea what the access to capital is going to be in the next six months. And we have runway to raise the Series A, but we don't have runway to like be like, well, let's like just go through a big recession and like figure out. And so we're like, <laughs> if, if we keep spending the way we do. So you're saying your husband did a great job of scaring the shit out of you? He did a great job. And you should have seen me. I was like, no, I did not. Like, it is, it, it, no one wants to have to hear about this like insane inconvenience to your business and your team, you know? And he was just like, this is going to change people in so like profoundly um, for the next 12 months that you can't really bet on anything. And, and let me tell you something that I know about investors is like they want to de-risk. And this is the riskiest environment possible to invest in. And so yeah. just knowing that the access to capital is going to be limited for a while is just something that I need to be completely prepared for. Yeah. Can you describe the moment, Debbie, that it clicked for you and you realized what you needed to do? When um, my I had when my hospitality salesperson, when we were sitting and having a check-in and he was like, nobody's getting back to me because he's just selling into offices and hotels. And it went from yeah. being like, oh man, things are heating up. And he was like, there's nobody getting back to me. And people are canceling now. You know, because these offices are beginning to go remote. Yeah. And him just being kind of beside himself, he's like, just, I don't know what to right. do with my time anymore, I think was when I was like, our company has to completely change right now. Yeah. No matter how hard we work to get this like sales funnel going, like it's over. Like we can't pretend that it's going to be back in a month from now, you know? What? So like, what was the feeling in that moment? It was total dread, you know, like this great guy who had been working really hard, who had been sitting side by side with us, like brainstorming constantly and, you know, taking chances on like reaching out to people and trying to be as fearless as possible in a new sales channel to be like, I'm going to have to let this guy go is really, it's really hard. Wow. So before you laid people off, did you talk to your investors? Did any of them advise you? to make some changes to the business or was this all done on your own? I called all my investors to let them know what I was planning to do and they were all like 100% right move. One of them is like my first original investor from 500 Startups. He was just like, you know, just do everything you can to like conserve your cash. That's the most you can do for your company right now. There was one thing that he said that was when I was like debating over a couple people. He was like, if your finger is hovering over anybody, I would advise you to let them go. And I thought that was like the right move. So what'd you do? So we decided to like let go of half the team. So we cut four people. So we were 10 and now we're six. Got it. All right. So it was originally your husband convinced you that COVID-19 was like a real thing. And this was on March 2nd, right? So when did you do the layoffs? March 6th. Four days later. Wow. Yeah. Super rough. Now, March 6th, like this is very early on. Like I'm hearing about all the companies now, just now, halfway through April, finally laying people off. And you did this yeah. way back then. Like, wow, that seems not aggressive, but maybe... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, might be the I way think to you could it. say it was aggressive. I don't think there's any investor who doesn't think that I'm aggressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you, like there were a couple of weeks there where you were you were kind of out of an on a limb. There was never a moment where you're like, 
you know, maybe we could have kept so-and-so and, like, waited this thing out a little bit longer to make sure. Because, like, things could have bounced back in, a, in, like, a month or so, right? I think that, like, my husband did a really good job at showing me how that was actually an impossibility. And one thing I really didn't want to do culturally for the team was for there to be multiple rounds of layoffs so that people end up working from home, like constantly looking over their shoulder, waiting for when the next round of layoffs are going to be. And I was like, I want it. If we're going to do layoffs, I want to do it all at once. Right. You want the people that stayed to feel confident in their jobs, that they're not the next ones. Yes. Once I began to realize how crazy this time was going to be, I was like, my job is to create stability as much as possible for my company and for the people who work here because it's so scary, especially at a startup. And so being able to make people feel like they have a job for the next year and to not as long, you know, like if we all work hard, like we're going to be fine. is just something that I was like absolutely laser focused on. Can you tell me of of the layoffs you did? Do you remember one in particular that like was maybe the hardest? For one employee, she was definitely like the one we really didn't want to let go, but we just didn't have enough work for her. Mm. And I remember we told her, I, I think you're kind of aware with this with what's going on in the world. And we've realized that we really have to focus on sustainability of the company and we just don't have enough work for you right now to rationalize your salary and it has nothing to do with your performance or who you are as a person here at copper cow coffee like you embody so much of what we want culturally your attitude your stamina i've always been so impressed with you and we just don't have budget for your role right now and she just said Thank you so much for the opportunity for having gotten to work for such amazing, impressive women. Thank you for giving me the chance to do this. Hmm. And I just was like, like (laughs) to be so classy, you know, when we're letting you off in like the worst job market in the world, I mean, was just so impressive. And I just will forever just have so much respect for her. It's interesting. I remember laying people off and... It was all, every time I did it, it was always like a, almost a mutual thing. Like they knew that they weren't like performing well in the role. But in this scenario where someone is killing it and to have to tell them, like, we love you, but we just can't keep you, even though you're amazing, like that sounds heartbreaking. It is. It totally is. That's the price of being the boss. Yeah. So you laid off four people. What did you do, like, immediately after? So we w- we all went out to brunch and just kind of tried to talk about our feelings and, like, what this new stage was going to look like and to for me to just try to really reassure people that, you know, the intention of this, as aggressive and scary as it is, is to, like, make everybody feel really secure, you know? And I know that doesn't feel like that today, but that is, like, the point of this. And then we went back to the office and just, you know, we have monitors and keyboards and everything. And I was like, everyone should take things home. And it's funny because like now everyone thought I was crazy because like I was pretty early. And like my staff were telling me now that they thought I was like acting like a crazy person. I'm like, you're going to be home through at least the end of April. And they were like, Debbie is losing her mind. She can laugh about it now. 
But it was a crazy time. Debbie had effectively abandoned two of her distribution channels, the two she was most excited about, offices and hotels. Now she was only selling Copper Cow in grocery stores and on her website. But then Debbie had an idea. I remember when we were having brunch, it was on like March 6th on the Friday, and I said, you know, we should have a sale this weekend because I think people are going to be at home and wanting coffee more. Like, let's have a sale, you know? Uh-huh. And then it ended up being Black Friday level sales. And we were like, okay, something is different. What happened? Basically, you know, there's an $80 billion coffee market, most of which are offices and coffee shops are suddenly all being displaced and like people are looking oh. for coffee solutions. So but the, between the ads getting cheaper and people being more like, oh, okay, like I'll give this a try. Like I'm just out of coffee and I just don't <laughs> want to go to the store. <laughs> I'm bored working from home, <laughs> browsing the internet. Oh, try yeah. some Vietnamese coffee. It's been it's been insane. We're growing every day. Like it's like every every day is like Black Friday. It's like amazing. It's like it's like not to be like it's amazing. It's not amazing. This is like terrible. But um, in terms of our you know viability as a business, it's like very very reassuring. We've tripled our ecom revenue and not increased any ad Whoa. spend since this all happened. And then on top of that, we've been seeing like a doubling in our grocery velocity. So it, it does look like. By next month, we are going to be kind of like moving into profitability. Um, so it's been really, it's been really a really hard adjustment. Wait, wait, hold you know, on like, one second. You're going to be profitable next month because we are performing so well online. So you said originally that you thought you'd be, you were hoping to be profitable by the end of this year after all the changes that you made, and because of the growth you're seeing, you think yeah. you'll be profitable this quarter? Yeah. Like Q2. Q2 2020 will be profitable for the first <laughs> yeah. time ever in the yeah. middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember an investor once said to me, one of our investors, that he said, I mean, you're doing well in several channels, but you're not doing like great in one. <laughs> but now that we do have that kind of company and how efficient that is, I understand why that's like what's attractive. It forced me to focus and it does, it makes, it makes running the company much easier, you know, cause it is like, you can do more with less. Yeah. It's just so interesting to me that you did this so quickly and so early. Like, where did you learn to, I guess, be that decisive? I think that, um, I have bootstrapped my business for two years, right? And just being so in tune with what every dollar does, I think that I was able to move pretty quickly but with knowing like, what do I really need? Like how many times did I have to make those decisions when I was like just one person and one employee? I mean, there but there was a, a time when I only had like less than $20,000 in the bank and we were like making like hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to make this work. And so I think that I learned a lot of discipline about being like, what is the minimum that you need? It also feels like such a big step back, you know, like you end the year and you're like, oh, my God, I've got all these people and I've got all these channels moving. And you have this trajectory in your mind of where things are going to go and be. And it feels like a real far step back, a lot of this stuff. And like to even have the moment of being like, what if this doesn't continue, you know, unless I make really big changes is like, a really, really scary thing. And to be 
changing your projections and thinking about, well, maybe I need to be more modest about how we're going to grow the next couple of years, I think are just really hard pills to swallow when you've been working so hard. You feel, you feel kind of entitled to those, those dreams. Debbie realized what many founders didn't realize until weeks later. Things were turning quickly for the worse, and that investors weren't going to be there to bail her out. So Debbie moved quickly, making difficult decisions so her company could survive. Originally, Debbie thought her company would hit 6.5 million in sales this year. But now, despite the explosive growth in online sales, she'll be thrilled to hit 4 million in sales which is still an improvement, could be a lot worse. The crisis is forcing companies everywhere to narrow their focus on one or two things that they know will work. But sometimes the choices that you're forced to make can help you see a different path forward. And perhaps it's an even better path. Pitch is hosted by me, Josh Muccio, produced by Heather Rogers, Max Gibson, and Chris Neary. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. The original pitch was produced by Kareem Maddox and Molly Donahue, with editing from Blythe Terrell. Lisa Muccio coordinated the recording of this pitch. Theme music in this episode by The Muse Maker, original compositions from Breakmaster Cylinder, Emma Munger, Billy Libby, and The Muse Maker. We are mixed by Enoch Kim. As a reminder, no offer to invest is being made to or solicited from the listening audience on today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to take a minute to tell your friends about us and subscribe to the show. All of our episodes are available for free on Spotify. And we'll be back with another episode in two weeks on Wednesday. See you then. This episode of The Pitch was brought to you exclusively by State Farm. If you've been listening to our show for a while, you can tell every business owner has a unique set of problems to solve. That's why small business owners want someone to not only understand, but prioritize their needs. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they know how to help you choose personalized plans to fit your needs and budget. They get it, plain and simple. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.